invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11, uh, or you can follow along with uh, the insert that's in your uh, bulletin. We're actually going to skip a few verses, uh, but we're going to read chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip a few verses and read from verse 21 through 45 of that chapter. Um, this morning, uh, we are continuing our series uh, that we've been in for the past several weeks, a short series on the I Am statements of Jesus that are found in John's Gospel. And these are unique to the Gospel of John, where John records for us Jesus describing himself to us in these terms, saying, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Um, some of those are what we've seen already, and this morning we are coming to a passage where Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. So let's read this passage together. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, let's listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then verse 21 Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, we, we come asking for your mercy, for your grace, that uh, you would take this, your word, and that you would write it upon our hearts. That in this word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that as we have gathered together to worship you today, we all come from different places in life, and some of us are anxious, others heavily burdened with the cares of this life, others sorrowful, mourning loss in their lives in all different kinds of forms. Some come in to worship this morning and are thankful to be here because even just this past week you have drawn so close to them in their time of need and walking so closely with you right now and that there are others who it feels like a distant memory walking close with you. They know that in the past they had walked closely with you and are wondering if that's ever po- if it's ever going to be possible again. Still others find themselves full of doubts and skeptical of the truth of your word and others come wondering, feel as though they have been searching for you and yet feel just like the psalmist when he cries out, How long, O Lord, how long? How long till you turn your face towards me again? Father, though we come from all these different places, we recognize that however we come this morning, We're really all the same. We are all on equal footing. Because the truth is that we're all far more sinful than we know. Were we to even try to imagine the depths of our sin, we couldn't. We don't know even the secret things that lie in our hearts. The truth is, oftentimes, we are surprised by our own wickedness. We cannot imagine the depths of our sin. And so we all are really the same because we all need the same thing. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know of His death and His resurrection for us. We need to know that though we are broken through and through, that we cannot imagine the depths of our sin, we need to know that we also, because of Jesus, are far more loved and far more secure, far more accepted, 
than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray as we look at your word together that you would help us together to see Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. If you came in late this morning, apologize for the chill in the air. Uh, we were a little late turning on the heat, but it's on, so hopefully it'll warm up, and hopefully it won't warm up because of my preaching this morning. Um, but um, I'm going to start telling you this story that I, I read a little while ago. Um, on December the 4th of 2011, a, uh, a bronze statue, a, a fairly small uh, statue, just over two feet tall really, uh, sold for some $225,000 at an auction. It was uh, a statue that was made in Italy during the Renaissance or something like that. But Originally, that statue was purchased by this man named Dennis Warrington Fry. Um, he purchased it in 1970 at this antique shop in Sydney, Australia, and it sat on his mantelpiece for 30 years. Um, he bought it for $200 in 1970. It sold at auction for $225,150, to be precise. Um, this thing of Great worth sat in his home, but he died completely impoverished. His house was falling apart into disrepair, and he was unable to pay his bills. And he died at age 80, and his estate was auctioned off. The title of this article that I read was, Owner dies in poverty while Renaissance bric-a-brac worth 225000 sits on shelf for 30 years. All, that incredible value, something of incredible worth, sat in his home, and yet he died in poverty. His friend, a guy named Jeff Northausen, I think is how you say his last name, said, said in this article, it's hard to imagine what he might have done with the money had he known the figurine was worth this much. Obviously, um, that's the, that is the big question. What would he have done if he had known he had this piece worth so much? You know, we're looking at the next I am statement of Jesus where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. But I, I want you to see this morning, and it's more than just this bald statement. What he is saying is he's saying in this passage, I am the resurrection and the life for you. You see, in verse 25 and 26, he tells Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? It is his resurrection and his life for you. I mean, a huge, huge deal that he is the resurrection and life. And a huge deal that he is the resurrection and the life for you. But I want to suggest that oftentimes this very fact about Jesus, his own description of himself to be the resurrection and the life, is a treasure that we leave on the mantelpiece. Never knowing, never tapping in, never accessing the wealth that is there, unaware of the ability of this truth to change your life from the inside out and out. You know, Christians, we don't often live out of this or draw on this. 
right? We find ourselves stuck in the same old ruts, the same old habitual sins, no real abiding joy bursting forth out of our lives, sometimes walking through life even as Christians because we're failing to tap into this and failing to access this. We're living without freedom that we were meant to live. We're not living effective in our ministry, right, to, to an onlooking world. There's nothing, there doesn't seem to be anything attractive about us. You know, you look at the early church, and you see this, especially in the book of Acts, right? The early church, it wasn't, I mean, obviously it was planned and organized by God himself from eternity past, but it wasn't a planned deal in the early church. It fell out of the resurrection, It just happened in the wake of the resurrection. So much joy spilling out everywhere. I mean, you read in Acts chapter 2, you know, about this this description of the early church. And it says that this church is gathering together, worshiping, fellowshipping together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It says there that they were enjoying the favor of all the people. They were so attractive because of who they were, it all fell out of the wake of the resurrection. Now, this morning, I want to attempt to show you this treasure and to show you how to draw on it, even in the hard and difficult places and times of life. I, I want to show you how to access it so that you really can be different. Because you see, I know what I know is that if it is real to you, like it was real to the, to the first church, to the early church, it's going to make the same kind of impact it did 2,000 years ago when they found Jesus' empty tomb. And so let, let's walk through it this way. This is a story, so we're going to walk through it in three stages. Jesus stays, Jesus enters, and Jesus raises. You know, I know that we just read the whole story, so for a moment you'll just have to pretend uh, that you, you're not able to cheat, right, and know the end of the story and how it all turns out. And, and if you do that, it really does make verses 1 through 6 sound unbelievably baffling. I mean, it's shocking even. It, Jesus in these verses, if you're honest with yourself, he just seems hard and calloused even because he hears this news of his friend who is sick, who is on his deathbed, And he stays put. He waits. He delays. Right? And and you get the painful urgency that's felt in this passage. Lazarus is sick. It's bad. And, and, you know, obviously it's bad. You don't send out news to Jesus necessarily because of a a cold. You know, Lazarus has some sniffles or something like that. They're saying, Jesus, we need you now. We need you right now. I mean, in verse 3, right? So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I mean, they don't even ask for Jesus to come. Right? The assumption is there. We know who you are, Jesus, and we know that you love Lazarus. So the assumption is by them telling Jesus this, that he will come. Lord, the one you love is sick, but Jesus he intentionally stayed. See, it's, it's much more than Jesus being late here, right? I mean, somehow, for some reason, he delays. I mean, we hear about his love for this family, right? They say, Jesus, the one you love, and they use the word of love for friendship love, right? But then you get down to verses 5 and 6, and it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the word there is agape, 
unconditional love, right? Jesus loved Lazarus in verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. I mean, you think about this. This is Jesus. He can heal with a word. He can heal with a touch. I mean, isn't this um, malpractice? (laughs) You know, I, I mean, Jesus is able to stop this. And yet he intentionally stays until Lazarus dies. You know, you're able to do something, Jesus. Why don't you come? And it's so hard for us to see just with those verses, just with that part of the story, how Jesus' delay could actually be loving. And I think that you have probably felt the same thing. When you only get that frame in your, in your life, out of the movie of your life, when you just get that frame, verses 1 through 6, Jesus, I know you can do something. I know you can stop this. I know you can undo this. Where were you when my marriage was falling apart, when I was passed over for that promotion, when my child went astray, when my life was crumbling? You seem so distant. You seem so uncaring not to come and be with me. You know, as I said, for some reason, his staying was loving. I mean, Jesus tells us in verse 4 that it was for his glory, that he was staying, that he was intentionally delaying. I mean, honestly, I think to hear that this is for God's glory, that, God, that Jesus allows this to happen. If you're in the midst of that life crumbling and falling apart, wondering where he is and why he won't come, to hear, well, it's for God's glory, it probably stings a little bit. I mean, all the pain, the loss, the confusion. I mean, it's very hard for us to see and even think about God's glory in the midst of that. But the cool thing about this story is that as we go on, which we will, uh, we're not going to stay here, Jesus actually puts meat on those bones and shows us what his glory is about and sh- lets us see it. But for now, when he stays, what we need to know is that it is loving because he is preparing you for something greater in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering. I mean, so often we, are, we come to Jesus saying, I need this now. I need you now, not later. This is life. And Jesus comes back in the delay to say, I want you to know something much greater. That I am the life and the resurrection. You know, many of you have seen the, the movies, The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, or, or maybe you've read the books, but at the end of The Lord of the Rings books, uh, in, in The Return of the King, in that book, the, the big battle is over, right? And, and it's, it has become clear that Aragorn is the king. But here's little Frodo, this hobbit, that we've been following throughout these stories. And Frodo, he is growing very impatient, He doesn't understand the delay because all he wants to do is go home and be back in the Shire, right? And he's expressing this to wise old Gandalf. And Gandalf says to him this. He says, Many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have labored to prepare the feast like to keep their secret. For wonder makes the words of praise louder. What he's saying is, We want to know now. But Gandalf, wise old Gandalf, is saying, 
but it's waiting, it's delaying, it's staying that makes the wonder of praise all the louder. I mean, we could go throughout this room and tell all kinds of stories about this. I know it, and you know it. We know what it is like to ask, where are you, God? This seems like malpractice. I know you can get involved. I know you can change this circumstance. I know you can intervene. Why don't you? Where are you? Do you not care? Why are you staying? I have to hold you there because this is a story, right, that's unfolding. You kind of stay on the edge for a moment. But in this first point, I'm asking you, when he stays and you're wondering if he cares at all, can you start reminding yourself that when Jesus delays, when he waits, and when he stays, it is because of his loving and kind purposes. But second, Jesus enters, right? When he stays, things go from bad to worse, right? Sickness becomes death, right? Trouble becomes a disaster. He stays, he delays, he waits, and he puts this off. But then in the second movement of this story, he enters and he enters all the way in. He enters into the pain, into the loss and the confusion and the sorrow. He enters into the death when it is at its worst. He enters right into the darkness and the confusion and the struggle, right? Uh, uh, You know, particularly he enters into Mary and Martha's pain. It's always been amazing for me to consider in, in this passage... Uh, what Jesus does here. I mean, because it really is amazing that both sisters come and they say the exact same thing to Jesus, right? In verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then verse 32, right? When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, the same exact statement. But Jesus doesn't respond with a cookie-cutter answer or response to these women. That's just the same for both of them. He responds to them individually as they need him to respond in this passage, in this story. And another thing he doesn't do is he doesn't respond to them in the midst of their pain and just say, oh, it's for God's glory. He doesn't do that. He enters into their pain. And so, right, to, to Martha... He turns to meet her individual sorrow and need. And in verse 25 and verse 26, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I I mean, to to Martha, what Jesus is doing, he is giving her uh, theology. He's giving her a statement of doctrine, right? He's giving her teaching, right? And, And he asks her for a profession. Do you believe this? And we're going to come back more to that statement in the next point and unpack it. But he gives her teaching, he gives her theology, he gives her categories, right? But then comes Mary, and what is his response to Mary? It says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. I mean, right, to Martha, she gets teaching. But Mary gets tears. I mean, Martha gets doctrine. Mary gets empathy. Right? Uh, uh, Martha gets this theology. But Mary gets compassion. 
exactly what they each needed. And you see, you can look in this passage, both of them, both of these women, they went to Jesus. And the encouragement to you this morning is to go to Jesus. Because He knows your needs. He enters all the way in. Into the darkness, into the pain, into the confusion. And He meets your real needs. You know, we ask, how could, how could Jesus enter all the way into my pain and my suffering and my struggles when life is falling apart? You know, Hebrews, let me see if I can find this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because he entered all the way in, into the misery and pain and the brokenness of this world, the author of Hebrews is saying, we can go to him, run to him, go out to him and meet him and find mercy and grace in our time of need. There's a priest, uh, his name is Father Damien, and he became famous for his willingness to help lepers. What he, did, he moved, actually, to Hawaii, that had been, this village in Hawaii that had been quarantined as a leper colony. And he moved there to help. And I, I want to read you just a brief section of his story. It says, For 16 years he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch preached to hearts that otherwise would have been left alone. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly it was said that this village became a place to live rather than a place to die. For Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his finger in the bowl along with the patients when they ate. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close. And for this, the people loved him. Then one day he stood up and began his sermon with two words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin, for he had chosen to live as they had lived, and now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. What I'm telling you is, this is the gospel. Once upon a time, God came to this earth, and he said, we lepers. He wasn't just helping us, right? He was one of us, and he was in our skin. He entered all the way in so that we could go to him in our time of need and find mercy and grace from his hand. We're slowly unpacking this passage, right? But now you begin to see, even now, the hint of this treasure begin to glimmer at this stage, that Jesus stays, but then he comes and he enters all the way in to your real needs. Now, finally, Jesus raises the last point. When Jesus stayed, things went from bad to worse, but then he enters into the pain, the chaos, all of that, and finally the climax of the story, Jesus raises. And more pointedly, where I want to go in this last point is to be able to look at this treasure that Jesus is, the resurrection and life. 
So we're going to do this fast. It's, you know, it's time to land this plane and we're coming down fast, right? So you've got to buckle up a little bit. But, um, but in verse 33, you know, we know the, the kind of the general movement of this story just from reading it. But in verse 33, we are told that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. But again, it shows up in verse 38 again that he is deeply moved. You know, you know what it's saying, there? it's saying there? That Jesus is agitated. That he's bothered. That it, you could even say he is angry at this stage in the story. It, but the question is, at what? Um, because we are already told that Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows how this story is going to unfold and what's going to happen. He knows the end of the story. I mean, we didn't read it this morning, but verses 11 through 13 tell us that. Tell us that he knows the end of the story, that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Let me see if I can find those verses. Verses 11 through 13. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, that is his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So what I'm saying is he already knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why is he so angry? Why is he so bothered? Why is he so deeply troubled? Jesus told Martha and is telling you this morning that he is the resurrection and the life and that he hates death. And there is nothing natural about death. It is not right. It is not what it was meant to be in his world. I mean, you go to a funeral and it is normal for you to go to a funeral and feel uncomfortable, to feel out of sorts, to feel lost at that place to not have words, to even be angry, because it is not right in this world. You're not the only one who hates death. Jesus hates it too. Death is not a friend to the resurrection and the life. And so what Jesus does is he has them take him to the tomb. He says, open it up and take the stone away, right? He receives these objections, right? It's been four days. It's very, very realistic, right? been four days since he died. There's going to be a bad, bad odor if you open that door. Jesus tells him to open and he prays to his father for the benefit of those people around there. They know he's dead. That's why he waited four days, so there could be no doubt. And then Jesus comes and he speaks into death and he called Lazarus out. He has authority over death is what he's showing all these people. Do you realize that Jesus, in his speaking, when he mentions Lazarus' name, and he says, come out, Lazarus. If he, this is the voice of Jesus. Had he not spoken Lazarus' name, every grave would have opened in that cemetery and released their prisoners. Jesus speaks, and Lazarus comes out alive. Remember that quote from Lord of the Rings where Gandalf says, many folk like to know beforehand what is to be set on the table, but those who have labored to prepare the feast like to keep their secret, for wonder makes the words of praise louder. Well, as that story goes, finally the purpose for all the waiting, all the delaying, all the staying was revealed, and this is what Frodo turned and said to Gandalf. At last I understand why we have waited. This is the ending. Now not day only shall be beloved, but night too shall be beautiful and blessed, and all its fear pass away. 
the loving, staying, waiting delay of Jesus. It not only makes the day beautiful, but it chases all the fears of night away. It makes even the night beautiful. And I am telling you that you can have that same kind of experience because Jesus reached all the way down into death. He entered all the way in and said, We lepers, he died the death we should have died. He came in our skin and died in our place. And when everything looked terrible, like a total loss, like nothing but a failure on the cross, Jesus stayed on the cross. And if you fast forward in John, you'll get to another place, to another empty tomb, to more strips of linen lying on the ground in Jesus' empty tomb because His death was for you and His resurrection was for you. You know, what does all this mean? What is this treasure that we really do have? And how do we begin to access it? I'm about to give you seven points of application, but they're going to go really, really fast, okay? And I'm going to give, give them to you under two headings, okay? When, Je- when Jesus tells us that He is the resurrection and the life in verses 25 and 26, what He is speaking of is both a, His promise is that His resurrection was for us in, a, in the sense of a future resurrection and a present resurrection. First, He's talking about a future resurrection, right? Verse 25, He says... Um, I am the resurrection life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, right? How, how does that change you to know that you will live even though you die? That there is a future resurrection coming? First, it's got to change your priorities in this life. To understand that this life is not all there is, that there is a future resurrection coming when there will be no more mourning or tears or sadness or grief. It's coming. That gives you hope, right? It changes your priority that this life is not all that there is, but it also means that what you do now counts and echoes into eternity, that it matters. Does this change your priorities? Understanding that a future resurrection is guaranteed. But it also, secondly, it removes fear, right? Fear of pain and loss and suffering. I mean, the greatest enemy is death itself. You know, when Paul is writing about the resurrection to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's so bold, he taunts death, our greatest enemy. And he says that death, that death has been swallowed up in victory. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? It removes fear to know that there's a future resurrection coming. But there's also a present resurrection in verse 26, and this is where we're going to end on this. He says, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? When Jesus says that he is the resurrection and life, that means that wherever he is, there is life necessarily. Wherever he is. So the first point of application here is to believe. I mean, this is what verse 45 says. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in Him. Trust Him. You know, Jesus asked Mary, or Martha, do you believe this? Christianity is all about personal pronouns. You could say this morning, Jesus died, Jesus rose again from the dead, all these kinds of stuff. But when you understand Jesus died for me, He was raised from the dead for me. And when you trust that, what happens is that Jesus, by His Spirit, 
comes into you. And where he is, there is life necessarily. And that means you are alive now. And what that means is that you ought to live free. It's the fourth bit of application, right? That you are to live free. Verse 44, Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. You are to live free because of the resurrection, because you are. That is what the resurrection says to you. When you look at Jesus' resurrection later in the Gospel of John, when he is raised from the dead, that is your receipt. (laughs) That all your debts have been paid and paid in full. There is no need for you to walk around in guilt and shame anymore because you have the receipt that it has all been paid by Jesus. Next bit of application, joy. This should be spilling out into your life. Christians, we are tired of you equating holiness with misery in life. Holiness is not misery. This is joy for us to be able to live before God as His people because of the resurrection. We have been set free to follow Him in obedience and in joy. Next bit of application. We are to work against death and decay in this life. Jesus, He comes and He is an enemy to death. What are you doing in the way of working for justice and equality? What are you doing in your relationships to heal them and put them back together and working against decay and destruction? What are you doing to make your career and your vocation count in this life? To do good in this world? Death and decay is not natural. Final bit of application is this. Death came into the world through sin. If you want to apply the resurrection to your life, then you need to go home this afternoon and kill sin. That is what we must do with the resurrection. Take it into our lives and become an active enemy of death in our own lives. Do you believe that Jesus entered death for you and he was raised for you? Don't leave this treasure on the mantelpiece. Bring it into your life and let it change your life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the resurrection and the life. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came and he entered all the way in. Came and entered all the way into the pain and the misery of this broken world, yet was without sin. And came and lived the life we could not live died the death we should have died and was raised from the grave for us. Father, we pray that we would not leave this treasure on the mantelpiece, but that we would bring it into our lives, that we would see its power unleashed in our lives as we become a people who are set free from guilt and shame, a people whose lives are spilling out in joy Father, we pray that we would be a people who know what it is to live by faith, not by fear. Change us, we pray, by the glorious truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. For it's in His name that we do pray. Amen.